0: listening to the Pay Friends Community Church Podcast, recorded March 22nd, 2015. All stirred up. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, We are continuing our sermon series in the Book of Acts. Uh, We've been going through the Book of Acts for a couple months now. And last week, uh, we we took a little break. We had Scott and Andrea Sward here from... uh, uh, there are missionaries to Cambodia and Scott, uh, he had a chance to share with us what's going on in Cambodia during our uh, potluck time, which was amazing. You guys always deliver on potlucks. And then during, um, during the uh, worship service, uh, he, he challenged us. He challenged us that um, he talked about one of his biggest pet peeves uh, he has that people often come to missionaries and say, how do you do it? And what he explained was that he does the same thing we're all called to do, except he just does it in Cambodia. We're all called to be missionaries. We're all called um, to be leading people towards Christ wherever we are. So we're continuing in Acts, but today um, I want to give you kind of a roadmap of where we're going to be so you can mark in your Bibles. So first, turn in your Bibles to Numbers 21. Turn to Numbers 21 and... And then, uh, and then Mark, John chapter 3, and then we will get to Acts chapter 6. Um, so it's almost as if there's a sermon, there's like two sermons. So that's right, this, this uh, message is probably going to be a couple hours, so just hold on. No, not really. But uh, here we go. All right, so you got Numbers 21, John chapter 3, then that will bring us to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Have you ever faced a problem and felt like if we could just remove this person, then the problem would be solved? Or have you ever had a job where where you're working with somebody and they're just annoying or they don't carry their fair share of the weight and you're thinking, man, if we could just remove this problem, then we would be so efficient. We would work so much better. If we just got rid of the problem, we'd be good to go. Or maybe you have that boss where you imagine if there was just another person in charge, there was another boss, if we just got rid of this guy, then man, all my problems would be solved. I would go home so relaxed in the evening. I would be a better father to my kids if I just had a better boss. And if I just got rid of this boss, I would life would be great. Uh, I remember one time uh, I was playing on a, on a church softball team and on our, on our church softball team, uh, we had this guy who played catcher, and he was terrible. Now, there's something you need to know about softball. Uh, there's this progression that happens um, depending on your age and ability and skill level, um, which determines what position you play. Now, if you're young, if you're talented, if you're good, you probably start off at shortstop, third base, left field, left center, center field. Those are those are those positions that you have to probably the most athletic players play. But then as you get older, as your skills decline, you might find yourself becoming the second baseman or eventually the right fielder. And maybe you can still catch, but you're, you're not very mobile. Then, then, then you become the first baseman. And the very last place you ever want to find yourself on a softball field, on slow pitch softball, is the catcher. That's, that seems to be the place where you put the guy who can't field and can't catch. Because the reality is is he'll only have to touch the ball after the pitcher throws it. And, and when there's a scoring play, what you do is you send your pitcher to cover home plate, right? So, so on our softball team, we had this guy, and he was terrible. He played catcher. But that wasn't the only problem. We as a team were pretty terrible. We lost every single game. Every single Friday night we'd go out there, our hopes would be high, this is going to be the week we're going to win, and we would just get trampled and destroyed every single week. And so as a result, what we started to do is we just blamed it on our worst player, right? We've all heard that phrase that you're only as strong as your worst player and so we blamed it on our catcher who was terrible and this guy was huge when he came up to bat teams they would back up like like they thought this guy was going to crush the ball like 400 feet and he would stand up there he would be in the box ready to go and then he would take his first swing and all the teams realized oh this guy's not going to hit the ball is he and so they all move in and you notice their body posture they start standing straight up putting their hands on their hips knowing that this guy is not going to hit the ball. But he became, our catcher became our scapegoat, where, where we would just say, man, if only we had we had a good lineup one through nine that, that can hit the ball, um, then we would start winning games. And so he became the, we'd say, if we just got rid of this catcher, if he was just not playing, then we'd win. Well, the real fact of the matter was <laughs> that it was not just the catcher. It was not just his fault. It was not just his Terrible softball skills, but we were getting destroyed. It took all of us to lose those games. I think I think sometimes we do this in life, right? We we imagine that if um, we imagine that if we just got rid of the problem, then all our problems would be solved. We would become better people. A guy by the name of Tyler Wig Stevenson writes a book called "The World Is Not Ours to Save," and he writes this. This fails to recognize the degree to which we are ourselves the world's most intractable problem. We are not all equal, equally culpable of all wrongdoings, of course, but the solution to humanity's condition cannot be viewed as the eradication of wrongs and wrongdoers because we are all implica- implicated. See, this is foundational to to Christianity. To to Christianity 101. Part of coming to Christ is to realize that we have all sinned. We are all broken. We we are not innocent ourselves. But oftentimes we have this idea that that if we just got rid of the problem, if we just got rid of of the source of our pain, the source of our hurt, then all would be right with the world. If we just got rid of all the wrongdoers, all the evildoers, if we just replaced our catcher, then life would be good but the foundation of christianity is that we have to come before the lord saying we don't have it all together we alone can't save ourselves we are not good enough turn your bibles to numbers 21 numbers chapter 21 and here's the scene Uh, the people of god they've been pulled out of egypt god has delivered them out of egypt out of slavery out of the hands of pharaoh and god sent moses to to deliver them and they find themselves in the desert and while they're in the desert um god's been taking care of them he's given them food to eat and he's given them water to drink and and it's not the ideal conditions but they are not slaves anymore and and what what the people of god do at this point is what what we as christians are really good at they they start complaining God, why do you have us here? God, why, why did you drag us out of Egypt into the desert where we have to eat this nasty food and this nasty water? Hey, we might have been slaves in Egypt before, but hey, at least we got to make our own food, eat whatever we wanted. Yeah, I worked hard every day, but, but, but I forgot about that. And so here they are, they're complaining against God and against Moses, and this is how God responds to them in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. When, when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now notice here that God does not take the snakes away, but the solution to the problem is the problem. Right? We our own worst problem. Jesus, in John chapter 3, you can turn there now, Jesus draws this parallel about himself just before he speaks the most famous portion of scripture that we see on road signs, that we see um, being held up in the end zone of uh, football games. Just the other day, I was driving down the 5 freeway. I I say the 5 freeway um, like I live in Southern California, but yeah, I was driving down the 5 freeway. And there there were these signs that were posted like on every every other light pole it seemed like John 3.16. John 3.16. But how many of us know the verses that come before John 3.16? Now, I want to give us a little background on what's going on. So in John chapter 3, a guy by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And he's a he's a head Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus and, and he calls him a good teacher. And what Nicodemus realizes is that Jesus has this following. People like him. People are drawn to him. He's funny. He's charismatic. Everybody likes Jesus. And, and that, that he has this following of people that are gathered around him and that he is gaining power and strength and numbers and that he's leading people. And what he also knows about himself is that he has his own following. The the Pharisees have this long tradition and and history on their side, and they also have a following. So he comes to Jesus with this grand master plan. what if we were just to band together and we could overthrow the Roman Empire? If we put our two movements together, man, think of what could happen, Jesus. Think of what could happen. And this is when Jesus says, well, in order to live, you must be born again. Be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't, this doesn't register with him. He doesn't get it. And he's thinking of this biologically. That, that, that's probably not going to happen. And Jesus goes on. And then he draws a parallel about himself with that verse and with that scripture in Numbers that we just read. Get this. Uh, John 3 verse 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, this is Jesus speaking, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So get this. If the bronze snake shared the image of the poisonous snake problem that it solved, then Jesus' humanity tells us that the problem he came to save is humanity. You see, Nicodemus, he's only looking at it as we don't need saving. Those people need saving. And what Jesus, what Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to see is to look within himself that, we are, that you are all broken. You all need a Savior. And the reason why Jesus is here is to save all humanity. Jesus's humanity points to the problem that he came to save humanity which brings us to John 3:16 says this I'm sure you guys all know it for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life now when now when we read this passage and and so often when I read this passage when when I when I hear the words for God so I imagine the so as like a volume statement. For God loved the world so much. God loves the world so much. Stretch out your hands. That's God loves the world way bigger than you could stretch your hands, right? But actually in the Greek, that so, it has a slightly different meaning. And in fact, it would read more like this. For God loved the world this way that he gave his only son. For God loved the world this way this way. So what Jesus is trying to point out to Nicodemus is the way in which redemption will be brought, that God would give of himself his only son who is perfect and flawless as a sacrifice to save humanity, which raises the question is how does God save? Sacrificially self-giving, self-emptying love, that kenosis, right? Well, now that we got that, this is how God works. This is what God, this is how God saves. Yes, he loves us so much, but this is how he loves us. Turn to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. last week, or two weeks ago, in fact, we were introduced to Stephen. Stephen was a chosen among some of the Greek believers um, because he is a man full of faith. And then the apostles lay hands on him. And and he is empowered with a task. And And one of the things that we saw a few weeks ago is that the original problem that the apostles were dealing with, um, in fact, it, it it creates something amazing happens afterwards. It says that they're struggling with that the Greek widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food by, uh, by their Jewish counterparts. And, and so what the apostles do is they say, oh, all right, we'll find some, some people, some men among you um, to, to be leaders and take care of this um, so we don't have to worry about it. And so as a result, they, they, they get Stephen and some other guys, but then it never tells us at the end of the text whether that problem was solved, whether the Greek widows were being taken care of, what it says is that the word of God spread. It kept going and priests were coming to faith. And, and so the word of God keeps going out. Now, this was our introduction to Stephen. And here we are in verse eight. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of uh, Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with um, with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom and the spirit gave him as he spoke. So Stephen... A Greek believer who was chosen from among the people to be a leader, and was now blessed by the apostles. In fact, um, uh, we see uh, in Acts four verse thirty-three that that Luke uses the same verbiage. Luke uses the same verbiage to describe the filling of the Holy Spirit with the apostles. Right, they are man, They are people full of God's grace and power. Now, he begins to face some opposition from among the synagogue. He begins to face this opposition uh, from among the synagogue. And this is something that we've seen whenever good things are happening, right? Whenever, uh, when John and Peter healed the man at the gate um, of the temple, uh, they were put on trial. Uh, they were jealous of Peter because of the power that he had. People were just begging to be in his shadow, um, uh, so, that, so that they can uh, be healed. And so this opposition arises because Stephen, he's a man full of God's grace and power and he's performing great wonders and signs among the people. And I think what's most frustrating for them is when they begin to dialogue with Stephen, when they begin to talk with him, that they are unable um, to get their point across and Stephen always has something else to say. And, it, and it's because that he is full of God's grace and power. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 11 and 12, um, he says this, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time that you, sh- that you should say. And so what they don't realize is that while they think they're arguing just with a man, Stephen, they're actually arguing with the Holy Spirit. Goes on, verse 11. So this is how they respond. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Notice not just what they do, but how they do it secretly. They have to do it in a way in which their manipulation is hidden. Isn't that evidence when, when we start to do, when we're sinning, when we start to do things in secret or we keep our motivations hidden from the view of others? Isn't this is um, isn't the how we do things an indication of our hearts? Now remember they believe with all their heart that they are they are right and Stephen is wrong. And what what they do, they will sacrifice their morals, their values to get their point across. This is how they operate. So one of the things that they 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 manipulate people to say is to say that he was speaking blasphemy against Moses. That and God, that's like the worst offense um Uh, you could have as as a Jew is to speak blasphemy against Moses and against God. It's like taking the flag and burning it at the 9-11 site, right? You know, that it it just has that. That's the worst thing you can do is to speak blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so they're choosing sides. They see themselves as right. Stephen is wrong and will do whatever it takes to dismantle Stephen. We, I think we do this ourselves. We decide that, that this is wrong, and we are focused on choosing the right sides and justifying our position, even if it leads to death and destruction. We sometimes have the attitude, what if we could just get rid of all the wrongdoers, all the wrong in our eyes, then there will be peace. I think this is their motivation, isn't it? If we could just get rid of this problem, as Stephen, all, all these problems, all... The things that he's bringing up will be taken care of. Now, it doesn't matter how we do it. We just got to take care of this problem that is Stephen. But this attitude is short-sighted. We see in contrary the way God brings things to right versus the way these synagogue members go about trying to go about justifying themselves. The problem is that these synagogue members are trying to eradicate what they believe to be wrong, failing to recognize that they themselves are in need of redemption too. Go on to verse 12. So they, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produce false witnesses who testified this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. Now, whenever you begin to speak blasphemous words, what they know by having these people testify to that is that this is going to stir up the masses this is gonna stir people up. And I think we are people who, who we get stirred up easily, right? You watch the news and the news knows how to stir us up. Now, if there's one um, newscaster that knows how to stir us up, it's a weatherman in Southern California. I believe that a weatherman in Southern California has the easiest job in the world, all right? So the weather in Southern California in the winter at its coldest during the day it's about 75 degrees and then in the summertime you get some heat it gets up to you know 100 110 you know some some you get some really hot days in southern california but you don't have a very wide range of uh, of temperature and then on top of that we don't in southern california there's not very the weather is not very severe either right it rains two or three times a year when a when a big significant storm comes and what weathermen in Southern California have to do is convince people that this is the biggest thing to happen ever when the rain comes. Oh my goodness, the storm's coming and they go on storm watch and, and you're glued to your TV like, what's going to happen next? Oh my goodness, and it rains for 20 minutes. And then when it doesn't rain, when, when it's been dry, when it's the winter season and it's nice, 75 degrees. They're saying, oh, we need the rain. When is it going to come? When is the rain going to come? We need the rain so bad. When is it going to come? And when it's raining, when is the rain going to stop? I can't believe this storm watch. This has got to end. And so what what they're doing, they know that they got to keep listeners engaged. They got to stir people up. I'm sorry, but the weather in Southern California is not that extreme. You can wear shorts. 365 days a year, shorts and sandals. Believe me, I've tried to do that up here. It doesn't translate so well. So, so what they do is they, they realize by, by claiming that Stephen is speaking blasphemy against God and against Moses, that this is going to stir people up. Remember, the reason why they are making false claims about Stephen are because they can't justify themselves. They view Stephen as the problem he needs to go, and as soon as we get rid of him, as soon as we get rid of that, that, that wrongdoer, then we will have peace. They believe down to their very bones that they are right and Stephen is wrong. Let's go on to verse 15. Notice how this section concludes. It says this All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. When we look at the cross, we are faced with the reality that the cross is our place. We all need redemption right? The cross is the place where an innocent man hung and died. And the reality is, was that the idea was, if we get rid of this problem, then we will have peace. But he is the perfect sacrifice He is the perfect sacrifice and and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So when the Sanhedrin are looking upon the face of this believer Stephen, they can only see glory, one who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, one whose place has been taken, has been forgiven, redeemed, and restored, and he is innocent. That's what they see when they look upon Stephen. Stephen, he's quite literally innocent in this whole text. But he's also innocent because he has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The one that was put up on the stick that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life. So when they look at him, when they look at Stephen, there's something different about Stephen than all the others in contrast. Because Stephen has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. When I look out upon your faces, I see the faces of angels. I see the faces of people who have been redeemed, who have been restored because of what God has done on the cross. We have all sinned, we have all fallen short, and we are fools to think. We are fools to think, oh, if we just could live life a little better, if we could just get rid of the problem, if we could just get rid of the boss, if we could just get rid of the one that causes us strife, if we could just get rid of the catcher behind the plate, Then we will have peace. Then we will have victory. But the reality is Christ didn't come to save the people that we think need saving. He came to deal with us. We are all sinners. We are all broken. See, when God created us, he said that it was good. It's not that God put us here and it started off as a bad plan to begin with. But God genuinely likes you. God loves you. And the way he shows you that he loves you is that he took your place. He took your punishment upon himself. It's easy. It's really simple to look at things in life, the people and places around us, and just think, man, if they... Would repent. If they were not how they are, then I would have peace. But what Jesus came to do is to save us, save all of humanity, save the problem that is humanity. He came to redeem and restore us. And when they look upon Stephen, one who has been forgiven, it's as if they're looking on. The face of an angel. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've looked all the other places. You you thought, man, if only these people were like that or if only these people weren't so oppressive or if only my boss was nicer, then I would have peace. And let me tell you this. There is no peace without Christ. So this morning, if you would like to receive this peace, if you would like forgiveness of sins, if you know deep down that you are broken, you are sinful, you have not got it right a hundred percent of the time, pray this prayer with me this morning. Lord, I am not perfect. Lord, I have fallen short. Lord, I have looked for other ways to find peace, God. And Lord, I know that it is only through your work on the cross that, has, that can redeem and restore. That you are the one to bring everlasting life. Lord, the cross is my place. And Lord, I come before you now to accept the grace and peace that you offer. Lord, mold me, change me. Lord, may my life reflect your life. Come into my life, God. Get a hold of me. I repent of the ways that I have turned my back. The things that I have done. Lord, redeem me and restore me. In your name, pray. Amen.